0: The thing that makes me happy is that people want to keep walking through the door so i'm going to be happy about that and that's my motivation and you know this i've i've been banging on about this for years since i left cp i'm gonna open my own business and now we've finally opened it um and, and i i love every minute of it we're here every single day and i just love it I don't, yeah
1: <laughs> this is the deep in the weeds podcast i'm anthony huckstep There's been a fascinating trend to come out of the upheaval of the last few years. After plying their trade in the big cities, many chefs have made a tree change to find a greater life-work balance and to celebrate produce of a region, to raise the stakes for regional dining. What does it take to make that big shift? Terry Robinson is the co-owner of Old Salt Distillery in Nowra in regional New South Wales. Terry, how are you? Good, thanks, mate. How are you? I'm good. It's good to get you on the show. It's been a little while since we've caught up with each other, but a lot has changed and you've made a huge move out of the city. Well, what's what's it been like?
0: It's been fantastic. A breath of fresh air, I guess, is the simplest way to sort of portray it and explain it. It was just, as city life, you, you know, you, you're, you're in the rat race and so sort of, in tuned with what everyone is and everyone else is doing it's just this huge breath of fresh air it's good it's 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 a bit more slow motion but it's yeah it's nice (laughs)
1: was was you say that it was it is nice but was that transition difficult to make that change for you
0: yeah it was huge um we have me and my wife moved down we bought a house and renovated it um and in the the aim to start a new young family um and being chefs that there's not a lot of uh, there's not a huge food scene down here and there's not a lot of restaurants and things to choose from or as a backup plan but we would always wanted to start our own business so um yeah it was kind of um just that yeah that real nice change and and like integration into any, th- any change, you know, is difficult. you just sort of got to work with, with what you've given and, and what you, how hard you look for it.
1: Well, uh, you rose to fame with some incredible restaurants, which we can talk about shortly. But these days, you're not just a chef. You're doing all sorts of things. You're distilling. And tell, tell us about what you're doing there at, at Old Salt Distillery.
0: So at Old Salt Distillery, um, we're primarily a distillery, and that needs to be our main business, being a producer wholesaler. Um, but we've sort of gone one up on most other breweries and distilleries throughout the country and built a fully commercial kitchen as well inside the distillery. Um, and then on top of that, I enjoy drinking beer and I know how to make it so we'd be crazy not to. So we make a range of our own beer, uh, fruit-based seltzers. We've got at the moment three styles of gin, uh, winter wheat vodka, and... Um, Limoncello, we're working on fruit liqueurs, and I've just started our whiskey production. Wow. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot happening in terms of alcohol, and then on top of that, we um, have the full commercial kitchen, which we trade over weekends uh, serving lunch and dinner doing what we know, what we know. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is such a crazy
1: um, transition. You know, you were head chef of what was arguably the best restaurant in the country at the time, CPR, to years later, um, you know, distilling and brewing beers. What was it like jumping into the, that sort of realm with the trial and error? What What, what led you to, to do that?
0: Um, well, our... One of my long-term goals, and my wife's as well, was to (coughs) build a restaurant and then use that restaurant to leverage, um, to build a distillery, close the restaurant, retire on the distillery. That was the 5, 10 and 15 year plan. But as we were in search for the site for a restaurant, that sort of COVID pandemic started to hit and we were thinking how are we going to manage a restaurant in this climate where are we going to get money from how are we going to like can we even start a business and then it just sort of forced us to compress the idea into one um, and it just it just all sort of happened everything fell into place it was never pl- uh, like if you we re-wound, rewound 3 years ago and you said to me would you want to open a res- uh, restaurant inside a micro distillery in South Nara I would have told you you were crazy <laughs> But it just took us, it took us so long to find, it took us three years to find the site. We were sort of just got to the point where we were like, we had to make a decision and had to do something. And um, then came the birth of Old Salt Distillery.
1: Let's talk about distilling for a second. Like, is there similarities or things that you could draw from, from your chefing career and dish creation and understanding of ingredients that helped you enter the realm of distilling?
0: Yes, yes, there is. They're, they kind of go hand in hand in in a lot of aspects where it's um, there's a science behind it. There's a science behind cooking. There's with distilling and brewing. You're following a recipe, um, same as you would a chef. And it'd be like if you gave three brewers three all the same beer recipe, I bet they'd make you three different styles of beer or three ty- different types of beer, you know, and it's the same with this: if you gave a chef a chicken and told him to cook a chicken, you get three different types of chicken. So they are they are very similar, but um, distilling gets quite technical because it starts to fall into a different category where you're producing dangerous goods because the alcohol is above 20%. Um, and there's a lot more in the chemical compounds with aging in wood and all those sorts of things, adding fruits and distilling temperatures and whatnot, but um, a lot of similarities. And I'd been brewing a lot um, as an avid home brewer, so I kind of got a really good understanding of it. Um, Not to say that I was any professional home brewer or whatever, but it's like anything. You know, you start somewhere, and if you put enough time and effort and research into it, you can become great at it.
1: I want to explore what you're doing uh, there at Old Salt uh, Brewery, sort of more in depth a bit later on, but um, take us back to when you were young. What sort of role did food play in your family growing up?
0: It's funny that um, food in my family, we weren't, I guess, wealthy or whatever growing up. We were just that sort of average family. My father was a printer. My mother was a teacher. Um, don't get me wrong, food was a, was a big part of it. Like my nan was um, heavily involved in the CWA, the Riverina. She um, had 50,000 hectares um, sort of out towards Spirellin and was grain farmers predominantly, which funny story links up to what we're doing now. All the grain that we buy is from a farm that is not far from where nan's property was in Witten, yeah, the malt house, Voyager Craft Malt, yeah, so, and they actually used to work for my uncle. So crazy, right, that six degrees of separation. But, yeah, so I whenever we visited Nan, it was always learning how to make those old-school jams and she'd make her own cordials and, and scones and all that sort of thing. But to, to be honest, the way I fell into cooking was um, I was to get me out of trouble. I was just out causing trouble on the weekends, so mum said, you need to go get a job, and um, I I got a job as a kitchen hand. On weekends, yeah, after school, and then um, literally the second that I could get a job... Um, I got a job, yes. End of year 10, as soon as I finished that, I was straight into the kitchen full-time, started an apprenticeship.
1: Take us back to those days. What was sort of the really important venues really early on for you and people that sort of helped you start to build your career?
0: Um, I can tell you turning points. I thought about it today. It really, it, it sparked that conversation with myself was when I worked at tetsuya's the caliber of chefs that i was working with at, at the time i never would have thought um like vicky wilde signed my ship back when he used to indenture apprentices in 2003 at tetsuya's <laughs> um and I, I, had, I had i had the chance to work with some really great chefs um and martin ben being one of them who ended up being my long-term mentor like i i'd I, I worked under Martin Ben for 11 years um, and worked with Darren Robertson and Dan Puskis and all sorts of great chefs. Um, But Sano, I I don't know his last name. I just know him as Sano, the Japanese chef. He's Sano Sushi on Instagram. He... I remember one day I was cutting scampi and I'd just rip the paper and throw it on the tray and be like, okay, cool, and cut them up, you know, and put them on there. And he goes, go, no, why don't you lay them nice? Cuts the paper the size of the tray. And he said, there's there's a difference here. There's good and then there's great. And you can choose which one you want to be. And I was like, wow, okay. I, I like being great that looks really good you know and and from then on I sort of really started to set goals with where I wanted to be with this career because I before then you know I it was it was the job to get me out of trouble I'd get paid I'd go to work and go home and sleep and wake up and do it all over again. But that sort of really helped shape my career and, and I guess made me, help me choose a lot of good decisions that probably led me to a lot of these places that I got a chance to work at. You
1: mentioned um, 11 years with Martin, Ben, which is quite extraordinary. Do, do you have any stories of moments in time of what it was like working with Martin and the impact that he had on you?
0: Yes. Stories that make your hair curl—it's—it's <laughs> it's endless, yeah. So it was four, four years with Martin at, at Tetsuya's um, as an apprentice, literally from the first year till qualified. Um, and from then, I there's not a lot I can remember because the training was so intense. It was Tetsuya's. It was back then. It was three hat. That was one of the best restaurants back in that time, you know. Um, and it wasn't till, after, till three years later that I worked with him at Sepia again. And that's when the, we sort of formed this relationship where um, we just have each other's back. I knew how he thinks. He knew how I think. And we worked really well together. And I really liked where that business went and just how quick it sort of took those leaps and bounds and how involved I was in it as well. You know, I, like I uh, – yeah, I – in in fine dining, you give your life. It's just part of the of the the way the restaurant works. You know, um, whether it. even with when I was at Key, it was the same. It was you give it everything or nothing. You know, it's the only way you can sort of. Make yourself known and, and fit into that team because there's a there's a whole kitchen full of 20 guys and they're just giving it everything, you know. They turn up every day, they work long, crazy hours and then they go out partying all night together and it's just this like camaraderie of military camaraderie, you know, where it's, yeah, you, you know more about each other than your family does. Yeah, your resume
1: is, in, is incredible and the restaurants you just rattled off, um, Tetsu, is key Sepia. Were those kitchens different and did you take different things from them
0: yeah hugely different not only the the amount of chefs that i've worked with have now gone on to open their own businesses or whatever and i've stayed in touch with them and learnt from them through that um they all vary so much just in style in um culture there was a a big part of like a i guess a, a three hat restaurant succeeding not that i've ever had one but i've always worked in them is the the team—it's it, it, so important, and it's so important in culture, and that's why I really learned culture. And I thought one thing I want in life: my when I was at Tetsuya's, my one of my main goals was to be in the newspaper, so my dad would open the newspaper one day and see his son in there. And 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 I, I did that. I, I achieved that goal um, when I won the Josephine Pinilla Young Chef of the Year, um, and then. I guess with my business now, I want to have good culture, but I just I, I don't know how to see it from another perspective, you know, but that's something that I learned from all of those kitchens, which was consistent throughout the, all of them um, and that I really want. And I, I, I'd strive to, to do that, to, to train the young um Chefs that wanted to be that were where I was one day and to become sort of where I am maybe one day or, or become themselves, but learn that culture in in hospitality is everything because it's such a hard industry
1: you um you managed to get the the role working closely with martin Ben at c p o um, helping him sort of lead the team and it, w- were there any sort of experiences or um, moments um That you can share or stories of um cooking around the world or at sepia that um, sort of epitomized sort of what you experienced
0: yeah there's there 's two huge there 's a lot of events that we did that were big but there 's two really really big ones that stood out and that helped not only shape my name and and what i 've done and where what i 've done with Martin but also the restaurant and Martin himself was the we went to and did a dinner at Hooker Lodge in the North Island of New Zealand, um, and it was great. We we met that we went over there and we we flew over and another chef came with us and it was just this like peeled back layers. We got to know each other. This other part of like it was like we were on holidays because we were at a luxury sort of accommodation. Um, something that we'd never be able to afford at $3,000 a night for a room, something ridiculous like that, you know, but then yet we still had to put on the whites and do a dinner. So it was nice to spend that time and, and and have that as an experience that like, not a lot of chefs can say that they do that and, and sort of go to those sorts of places, but just, yeah, I, it's, it's to go with the owner of Sepia, you know, Martin, Ben and we're flying out together, sitting, you know, in an airplane flying to New Zealand. It's pretty crazy, but it's great at the same time. Um, and the other was when we did a dinner at Le Bernardin in New York with Eric Repair. It was, that was just life-changing and it was Martin, Ben and Vicky Wild are very, like, they, they 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 set these these crazy goals and like they want to achieve it like it was so they flew over before I did it was and me and Rodney were to fly over afterwards um, and they they booked it was like I think Vicky's line was it was eleven stars over five days of how many restaurants they were going to visit the, as in adding up all the stars of the restaurants <laughs> so there was these brutal dinners out we were out to we went to um, per se and it was like. 22 courses and we finished there at like three o'clock in the morning we had to get up and set up for this dinner the following morning but it was just it was so nice and um just that walking the streets of them and 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 dining out and just like letting our hair down and then putting the face on and being serious when we did it and we we know how each other work we know our limits we know what needs to be done and I, i liked being the guy that could back Martin up in, in any kind of situation, whatever was thrown at us. And, yeah, I, I made sure that that was a good goal of mine and to show that kind of respect. And even at Key, you know, like Peter Gilmore had such trust in in our guys. It like it was such a big restaurant. It was always full. It was always pumping. But you could see this level of trust where he knows he could walk away and trust certain characters to keep, keep that at bay. So, Yeah.
1: You cooked for some of the um, most renowned food writers in in New York on that trip that you talk that you spoke of. Um, were, you, were you nervous about that? Did that add to the pressure of everything that you were doing?
0: Yeah, that was huge. It was to step into a kitchen, and you had there was less than twenty four hours to prepare what we used to do in Sepia in another kitchen for people that we'd never known of before, and not knowing how they worked. You know, at at Sepia we kind of we could gauge how the customers would work, what speed they wanted to eat at, but knowing not knowing who we were cooking for and the, the fact that it was like these, the high-end writers, like what their style was. When we found out halfway through the dinner that a lot of them wouldn't even finish the dinner, they'd just get up and leave when they're done. for The New York Times writers and you know what Martin's like. It's like, oh, you're going, okay, here's a couple of extra courses before you go, you know. It was, it was such a great thing. He wanted you to try everything. But, that yeah, so we'd, we'd try and hit fast forward and, yeah, it was great because I mean, it's, it's such a big kitchen. They're like, here you go, you've got your own kitchen to yourself. It was just, yeah, it was, it was like there's so many stories about it. It was, yeah, it was amazing and the time before and after. And even when we sort of caught up with you over there, I remember, <laughs> I've still got the photo of you, me, Martin and Vicky <laughs> in living in the New York Life. You
1: made a shift in the last couple of years away from chefing um, and joined Victor Churchill. Tell us how that came about and what you were doing there.
0: So I left Cepia wanting to um, start my own business, the restaurant and then the distillery. Um, but in that, it had been 2003 to 2016 with no more than really two weeks off. Um, where the restaurant closed for two weeks over Christmas. So no big breaks, big holidays. I was pretty burnt out and I wanted to just sort of, I don't know, have a sabbatical, you know, a bit of a break just from my life because it was just, it was, I'd spend so much time and effort in other building other people's dreams and I kind of realised that and it was like time to start chasing my own dreams. Um, so I travelled for eight months all around the world um, and then I met my wife um, and then we decided to come back to Australia and because, uh, you know, you get the travel bug and you sort of think, oh, I could stay over here a bit longer. Let's go to another country. Another country, it's so easy to get around and then you kind of go, oh, Australia is where it's at. We need to sort of ground ourselves. Um, and, I, and we flew back and I was – literally I'd saved up so much money all that time I spent every dollar I had to borrow money to get home off my parents and then we got home and I was just sort of so broken I was like okay I need a job and we need to start again this is not a great way to start a business but let's let's get back into the swing of things and I always wanted to learn more about butchery Um, so to learn about butchery it's hard because meat's so expensive most restaurants will get it broken down already um and I approached Anthony Paharic and sort of said I want to learn about butchery and he said how about you learn about charcuterie and butchery together and I went, okay that sounds interesting um and he said well have you ever been and you know it's crazy he, he asked me if I'd ever been in a Victor Churchill and honestly I'd never been in there before I just I don't know why it was just something I'd never looked at you know and I walked in and just loved it i I was blown away i was just like this what like what is going on in this place um it just it just takes you in you know and then there's so many questions and being a chef you sort of you want to know all about what's what's happening here and then i met romeo um and next thing you know two and a half years passed but in that time romeo had um he'd left to do his thing so i kind of took his role and um was the head chef at um Victor Churchill for a year and a half um, and got to know the butchers, know Darren O'Rourke really well and a lot of the other butchers there and chefs and built up a team and just – it was – because it was crazy for a butcher shop that has – when when it was going, there were six chefs, four chefs, two pastry chefs, Yeah. And we were like flat out. We were doing 90-hour weeks sometimes just like any other restaurant, you know, like it was – you just – yeah, it's crazy. But then they sort of brought in that whole everyone can only do 50 hours and you got to pay them overtime and that's, that's that was the first time it hit me and I was in a head chef position, which was good. And I was – I guess the biggest thing I took from that was how am I going to do this in my business, you know. it's I'm so used to, to giving – working so much that – yeah, now it's it's sort of a thing in the past, which is it's for the good, I think, but that's what sort of helped made us shape the business where in our business where we'd only trade a couple of days a week and then the rest was production and then pushed us to do the distillery even more, which um we don't know a lot about, but yeah, it's um yeah, and I, I guess going back to the Victor Church, i sorry, go off topic, a bit off topic here, but um Anthony is he's he's very well at selling anything and it was so great that I could ask him any question about anything and he'd set me up with someone within his business that would teach me and tell me all about it. He'd organise staff visits to say you wanted to know more about Rangers Valley, he'd organise for you to go to the farm and learn all about what Rangers Valley is about and that just the beauty behind it and the the fact that he helps brands like Black Onyx, you know, is a lot of is, is was Anthony's idea of that one in ten freak cow has this crazy marble score, so he marketed it as Black Onyx. And yeah, just all those little things, you know, and you sort of getting back a bit down to the grassroots of where, where it starts, you know, before it becomes a steak on the plate is is learning that the meat education. And it's it's I I believe massively in his philosophy of eating better meat and less of it, and that's being sustainable in this day and age.
1: How did it feel when you finally found the site to sort of um, do the old salt distillery and sort of embark on your own um, vision and dream with with your wife? What what was it like sort of landing on it and getting it all started?
0: It was – it happened by chance from – Someone that I met, we hadn't even found this site, and they said their friends are about to move out of this site. You should, you should have a look at it. And within um, two weeks, we'd sign the lease. Um, and then two weeks after that, it was fantastic feeling, you know, taking the taking the picture of a key. This is three years of looking up and down the coast. We looked everywhere, up and down the south coast, to try and find a spot. We were looking in Kangaroo Valley, Kalbarra, Sussex Inlet. Aladala, all up and down and everywhere, and to land in Nara, yeah, was crazy, but good. I think because the population here, I think it worked out well. It was a smart business decision in the end. But sort of getting that, taking that picture of the keys, you know, like oh, we got we got this place, and it was a big old empty shed. And I guess the only way to to understand what's done is to visit and see because once you walk in, there's this. Yeah, it's like I said, it's hard to explain. You have to come and check it out. But um. Two weeks later, we went into full lockdown. So that was, yeah that that was the first sort of point where we had that realization of like, wow, this is this is going to be really tough now. Like everyone's told us, business is going to be hard, but we we can't even work on the place yet. We've just got the keys. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: um, these days you're distilling and brewing and and cooking. Um, Tell us a little bit about your food. What, what's, what sort of food fits in that environment? Is there a dish or two that you've cooked recently that sort of epitomises where you're at with your cooking?
0: Yeah, so a, a lot of the menu is um, designed to be cooked over the wood fire grill um, just because it. the first nine weeks was me in the kitchen and Michelle in the bar and we've, we're licensed for 120 and we can see 68 inside and 30 outside. So when it's busy, it's busy. And we had to be smart with this. If 100 people walk through the door, how are we going to serve them all? Um, so with that, a lot of the food was designed. Um, I took a lot from everywhere I worked. And I'd be crazy not to because sepia, for instance, like a lot of influence from there, that because there is no CPU anymore, all those techniques I know and learn, I, I try and incorporate it in the menu just to keep them alive more than anything. Um, and also, Victor Churchill. A lot of the charcuterie, the French traditional charcuterie. It's amazing how many people know and understand and love that. But there's just not a lot of places doing it because I guess it's it's old-fashioned in a way, but it's trendy as also. Like I guess uh, Spanish tapas is super trendy, you know. So we we do a lot of the French charcuterie. So make your own chicken liver parfait. I make dips, some classics like the French onion dip and whipped feta. So they're easy, easy to plate, easy to serve and delicious and great with a beer or a cocktail on a nice afternoon, you know. Um, I think one of the latest dishes that we do that is accepted really well by the local public is um, just a rump cap that I cook on the barbecue and just serve it with some vegetables. All our vegetables, all our vegetarian dishes are cooked on the on the barbecue so we just do um, pumpkin and carrots and chimichurri and just simple like really easy but affordable as well I think the spend per head is where we're trying to target because we are a uh, a micro distillery we do have a little restaurant in it but we're somewhere in between both of those so we don't take any bookings and we offer table service but you still need to come to the bar and order. So it's it's quite quirky, it's quite tricky, but it's realistic in this day and age, you know? It means I can have less people on the floor, less guys in the kitchen and the business still runs um and then another one of the dishes that i had to take off but i've gotten back on is there's uh i got onto one of our landlord has a really good friend who has another friend who owns a boat just out of Shohaven heads and he goes fishing for prawns so we get prawns and you could say they're local because they're less than 10 kilometers away is where they catch them so um and i just do like garlic prawns with yeah a little side of bread and the finger bowl you know that (laughs) it's quite rustic it's super rustic it's All the layers are peeled back. Um, We still get some people that had been customers at CPR, knew what we were about, and then they sort of go, huh, are you sort of upset that you're not doing CPR food or whatever? And, like, I don't know what they expect me to answer to that, you know, but I I, – yeah, I – I did fine dining. I love fine dining, but I, this is me. I guess this is I, this is me cooking on a barbecue at home. You know, it's <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Whenever I cooked anything on the weekend, it was on a barbecue at home. Less dishes. <laughs>
1: Take us into the distillery. Um, is there is there something that you're really proud of? Like one of the, um, the creations that you have that you can tell us about?
0: Um. Yeah, I think so. Because it's so new, our still was the last part of the business to come just due to lockdowns, COVID, shipping. Um, we ordered it in 2020 and it got installed. It's, it was supposed to be four-month turnaround. It got installed in 2022 towards the end of it. So it's only been operational for a few months, which is crazy. So the kitchen's been keeping us alive as a business, but now the still is in full swing. So I think we're getting good feedback, but the, the best feedback is like um, from a chef's perspective, when a reviewer comes in and gives you a score, that kind of determines what level your food's at, right? Because um, all your customers come in and say, that's delicious, but to a reviewer is it to the you know like that that sort of that's that system that they put you through to to rate where you're at as a as a chef as a business and whatnot and i feel it's the same with the spirits so we're gonna enter some competitions and try and get some feedback from there and see where we're at with our spirits because i think they're delicious i um we're so with the vodka we're trying to understand chemical compounds so it's like wine. When you drink wine, at um, how does your taste buds react to it? You know, do, is there strong in tannins that makes your jaw tense up with vodka? It's like, does the tip of your tum- tongue tingle? That's a... Uh, a fault in vodka where I, I guess a lot of people don't know that and it's an education and that's what we're trying to provide as well as anything we learn we'll pass on to our customers but we're trying to make a smooth vodka we've got some really nice gins we do a navy strength and then two styles a citrus and a classic sort of London dry um, and then our latest creations are the fruit liqueurs so we're using fruit from Parksborn produce my mother um, and creating a boutique line of uh, fruit liqueurs that are just great for they're, – they're an ingredient for um, cocktails or, and bartenders. I think that's what we're sort of going to market it as. That sounds
1: amazing, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up your mother with Parks Born Produce. We've had her on The Producers some time ago. What, what's it been like for you as a chef seeing your mother dive into that world of produce after being a teacher?
0: that's it's it's such a touch on my past of what she grew up doing like they'd they'd, like nan had grain and meat chickens and we grow our own fruit and veg um and and mum does the same she's got her chickens that lay her eggs um she's got ducks that lay eggs as well and they have a couple of those every year you know and um they've got the she's gone into the i'm not sure what pushed her into the uh soft fruit market but She sort of started with a lot of the ideas I got from um, key, like the alpine strawberries, for instance. Richard Kalina used to grow them for Peter Gilmore. And then I sort of – mum said, oh, look at those strawberries. I went, wow, they're great. But have you ever tried an alpine strawberry? No. And the next thing you know, she's growing 14 different types of alpine strawberries. (laughs) and But everything she grows there, it's because of her knowledge and – like what she's learned within from from, like living off the land she understands it in that crazy way and just we haven't had anything bad from her like she's grown wasabi there there's been she's got a trufflery yeah so 1.1 hectares of truffle inoculated perigord truffle trees the um oak and hazelnut but it's never a big interest in her. I guess she doesn't eat truffles, you know, <laughs> but I'll be like, Mum, this is what you do with truffles. Yada yada. She's like, yeah, I just should have shaved my scrambled eggs whatever, <laughs> you know, to her. It's like a, yeah, but yeah, I, I, so it's, it's sort of our idea. Like what we're trying to get her to do now is grow botanicals for us because she's, she's got the land, she's got the knowledge. Um, yeah. So that's, that's a sort of, it's great. And it's, it, I love it because it does remind me so much of just, I guess, our family history, you know, from, from her side, from Nan and, and, and that farming background. Amazing. Well, it's um, it's been a long time coming and you've
1: been working at it for quite a while, but do you, you do have your own sort of place now
0: and um, doing amazing things. What, what do you love about what you're doing? Um, you know, one of our customers – Every time he comes in, he looks up at us and he brings friends and he says, look, you can hear him say, look, 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 watch this. Terry, and I look up and I just smile at him. I don't know. He just makes me smile. I don't know what he's saying. He says, like, see, that smile, it just makes you want to spend money and it's just the fact that after all that, like when we were building, like COVID hit and then price of timber and materials went through the roof and then when we finally got to finishing building and opening the kitchen, the, all the – Hospitality was starting back up. The price of of everything went up, you know, all the produce was started climbing. Then we went in, the steel came in, the shipping went up, uh, was it like 35% or something crazy, and, and when you're shipping like a 20-foot container, it's a lot of money. And then we're into bottling now, and now the war in Ukraine has affected bottle manufacturing because of the gas supply. So now the bottles have gone up 25%. <laughs> Yeah, so it's just uh, uh, the. It, I'm not going to ever let it get me down. I've gotten mm. used to things are going to go up. That's what. That's just the day, the the life that we live now. But the thing that makes me happy is that people want to keep walking through the door. So I'm going to be happy about that. I'm, that's my motivation. And you know, this I've I've been banging on about this for years since I left CP. I'm going to open my own business, and now we've finally opened it. Um, this week is our first birthday, believe it or not. So. 12 months has gone by already Um, and and I I love every minute of it we're here every single day and I just love it I don't yeah (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) well uh, Terry congratulations on um, what you're building there and it's such a great honour to get you on the show and hear a part of your story Um, please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon
0: absolutely thanks for having me
1: this is the Deep in the Weeds podcast I'm Anthony Huckstep